Let me take this opportunity to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us to worship our great God and Savior this morning. Welcome, greetings. Uh, it's uniquely wonderful that we have some former members. Yes, I'm talking about Dadu and Juana of Bercia, who are members years ago but are visiting uh, here from Michigan. Uh, we'd like to welcome you here with us to worship our great God this morning. Welcome. Sure. Warm welcome. Uh, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. It's our last Sunday in 2 Peter. Not your last Sunday, but our last Sunday as we preach through it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Let's hear God's word together. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess this morning that we don't just have eternal life through you, the forgiveness of our sins, the reception of the Holy Spirit, but we confess, Lord, that you are in yourself eternal life. To know you is to have eternal life. Uh, Lord Jesus, grant us more and more of you. Grant our communion and fellowship with you to deepen. Grant our hearts to expand as we see more and more of your majesty and beauty, Lord. Lord Jesus, it is our desire to not only behold more of your glory, but also increasingly reflect your character. Lord, help us to put aside our pride, self-love, and competition with others, Lord. Let us delight uh, in the triumphs of other people. Let us rejoice in the joy of others, Lord. Let us be a selfless, humble people. Let us put aside sexual impurity, pornography. Let us put aside deception and lying. Let us put aside fits of anger and grant us to walk in purity and holiness in a way that exalts you, Lord, and brings blessing to others. We pray now that you would speak to us through your holy word. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you do what you always do, accomplish your good purposes through the reading and proclamation of your word. Lord, thank you that you are with us. Bless this time. Exalt your name, we pray. Amen. I suspect that many of you have heard the expression, the best defense is a good offense pretty common expression. We apply it often to sports. You watch your team clobber the other team and then suddenly they get conservative and it allows the other team to come back in the game. You want to always keep the initiative, don't you, if you're going to triumph. Best defense is a, uh, a good offense. Uh, this general truth was reinforced for me personally, though, um, at the men's uh, paintball event that we had this last week. First time I ever paintballed? Yeah, no, it was fun. Uh, first time I ever did it, it was a blast. Uh, but the team I was on began very reluctantly. You know, first couple of games, we, we sat back uh, and waited for the other team to take the initiative, and we got clobbered, like, like fish in a barrel. Uh, and we got tired of losing, and so we said, we, we need to make up some ground. We need to get out there and get aggressive and bring the fight to them, and we did. We still lost, but not as badly. We got more of their guys, and I'm pretty sure we got, well, at least we eked out one victory in there somewhere. Um, but what we see in all of these spheres of life, we see in the spiritual life. 
Uh, if you want to avoid error, avoid being dis disrupted in your walk with Jesus Christ, you don't just defend, you actively pursue certain things. Uh, 2 Peter has been warning us consistently about false teachers who trip us up in our communion with Christ. And so we need to be, on the one hand, wary of them, watchful. We need to play defense, if you like. But at the same time, if we are going to be spiritually stable, we need to not just play defense, we need to go on the offensive. And specifically in this final passage, Peter tells us we need to strive for holiness and strive for a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about three things this morning. Number one, Peter gives us three commands uh, in this section of the letter, this final section. Uh, one, strive for holiness. Two, watch out for those who twist the scriptures. Watch out for those who twist the scriptures. And three, grow in the knowledge of Christ. Grow in the knowledge of Christ. Verse 14, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish. That language of spotless and without blemish uh, echoes the Old Testament sacrificial system. Sacrifices pleasing to God, of course, didn't have a blemish, didn't have a spot or an imperfection. Uh, they needed to be pure. And in the same way, the lives of believers ought to be morally pure and honoring to the Lord. And Peter gives us a reason for that. Look back to verse 13. We saw last week that we are awaiting the return of our King, Jesus Christ, at the end of history. And when he comes, he will usher in a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, in which righteousness, goodness dwells. In that future world, there will be no wickedness or error or impurity. It will be a world of righteousness, of conformity to the pure and holy character of God. It will be, as the theologian Jonathan Edwards puts it, a world of love. Instead of this rivalry and this competition to outshine each other, we will delight in honoring one another. We won't seek to bring each other down. We will rejoice in others. This is a world uh, where there is no place for error. We will speak the truth. This is a world of undiluted moral purity. Sometimes we can feel that those who seek to be faithful to Jesus are living What's the contemporary phraseology behind the times? Uh, righteousness is out, of, is out of step with the way things are going. But this passage reminds us that evil has no future. Evil will be vanquished. And those who live in submission to Christ have a future. Righteousness prevails. And so Peter draws on that in verse 14 and says, Because you're waiting for a world in which righteousness dwells. Because you're waiting for a world of unblemished unqualified moral purity, live even in this life with a righteousness that will one day come to its full flowering uh, when Jesus returns. People should be able to look at our lives and they should be able to see in our speaking and our actions and our goals in life something of that future righteousness. It's not perfect yet, uh, but they should be able to glimpse truly some of the righteousness that will one day be here when Jesus returns. Notice Peter says, be diligent, strive to be found by him without spot or blemish. No one is going to drift into holiness or conformity to the character of Christ. You're not going to wake up one day and find out you're patient and wise and loving. A good night's sleep did it. Sometimes it does, but not always and not often. Uh, Peter's point is that we need to labor for holiness. You don't wake up speaking fluent French. You're not proficient in the violin without effort. We understand that to become proficient in these things, you need uh, steady 
effort maintained over a long period of time, so also if we are going to grow in patience and wisdom and self-control and humility, steady, slow, intentional progress sustained over time. Now we recognize that it's not our own strength that produces moral transformation finally. It's God the Holy Spirit working in us, making us like Jesus. He gets the glory. But what does the Holy Spirit use to make us more like Jesus? One thing he uses is our striving, the practical steps that we take to become more and more like Jesus, to put sin to death and walk in holiness. The first step then that we need to take to become more like Jesus is to recognize that there is effort, there is striving that we have to exhibit if we're going to be holy. Not just going to wake up holy, you have to strive for it. Perhaps this is not sometimes understood. We understand that Jesus came into the world, died for our sins, rose again, that we might be forgiven by God. Praise God, that's true. That's the very heart of our faith. But Jesus did more than just come in to uh, forgive us of our sins. He came in to make us new men and women, new creatures, to make us like him in holiness and purity. And if we're going to be that way, we need to seek after it, relying not on our strength but on the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless striving. Are you striving for holiness? Are you seeking to grow in Christ-likeness? What practical steps are you taking to become more like Jesus Christ? Last week, we spent some time considering how we grow in holiness, so I won't uh, discuss that further. But what I want you to recognize is that all of us need to be intentional to consider and to work for increasing holiness. Without that intentionality, it won't happen. Let's consider then... Uh, Four things that holiness is not, or not simply. It includes these things, but it's more than these things. Number one, holiness is not simply a matter of avoiding sins. Sometimes we have the idea that because I'm not committing certain kinds of sins that in my mind are great sins, therefore I'm doing well and I'm growing in holiness. Not true. Certainly, holiness includes not giving way to temptation, but there's also a positive side to holiness. We want to cultivate increasing goodness and conformity to the character of Jesus. We want to, yes, put off sin in the old ways, but we want to grow in likeness to the beautiful character of Jesus Christ. And we see these aspects in Ephesians 4.28. Listen to what Paul says to former thieves. Let the thief no longer steal. So negative side, don't steal. But rather let him labor so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. So stop stealing and work hard, make money, and then be generous with your money. Holiness involves both avoiding sin and cultivating goodness. Number two, holiness is not simply a matter of occasionally doing the right thing. It's not a matter of simply occasionally doing the right thing. So you can have a, a bad basketball player who occasionally makes a lucky shot. That doesn't mean he's a good basketball player. The measure of a good basketball player, the real test, is that he can reliably sink shot after shot. And in the same way, you're not a patient person if every once in a while you manage to avoid uh, an outburst when you're provoked. It's good that you know, there isn't an outburst, uh, but every, doing it every once in a while doesn't make you a patient person. A patient person is one who reliably and consistently exhibits gentleness and patience when they are provoked to anger. It's a character quality. It's who you are, not something that you stumble into from time to time. 
Holiness means having a character that has been formed to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. It's not just that we stumble into holiness here and there. Number three, holiness is not narrowly focused on one area of growth to the exclusion of others. This is also something that we do. We recognize, okay, I need to grow in self-control, and I'm going to work on that, and that's good. But then we neglect other aspects of obedience, our duties as husbands and fathers and employees, sacrificial service to others, patience, telling the truth. We need to seek comprehensive obedience to Jesus and not compartmentalize our pursuit of holiness. We need to be increasingly conformed to Christ in all of these areas. And maybe one of the reasons you're not making more progress in the area where you're focusing on is because you're too narrowly focused on just that and neglecting other responsibilities. And you may find that as you seek to be faithful in other areas of life, be more generous with your time and money, for instance, that has a spillover effect on the area that you know you need to grow in. Four, holiness is not simply about you, about personal growth. Holiness is not just about becoming more spiritually self-involved. Am I more patient? Am I more kind? Am I more self-controlled? Yes, there's, that's an element of it. But at the center of being holy, reflecting Jesus, is having a concern for other people. You can't be holy by going off in the desert by yourself, cutting yourself off from other people. A holy person is someone who sees the needs around them and seeks to meet those needs, seeks to serve other people. A holy person is somebody who is deeply invested in the spiritual and material well-being of their fellow man and takes active steps to be a blessing to others. You can't grow in holiness by just focusing on your prayer life and communion with the Lord. That's important. It's essential. You should do it. You need to cultivate a rich uh, communion with Christ, meditate on his word, seek him, worship with his people. Right? Like That's the vertical aspect of holiness. But we need to also pay attention to the horizontal aspect of holiness, a, a life of sacrificial service to the people around us. And it's as we get out of ourselves and start meeting needs and seeking to advance Christ's kingdom in the world that we find ourselves growing. So the call to holiness is not a call to just be a narcissist and focus on yourself. It's a call to actively seek to serve others and meet their needs. The basic question that we need to ask is, am I pursuing this increasing conformity to the character of Jesus? Does this describe your life? And what practical steps can you start taking to be more intentional about the pursuit of holiness? Maybe that can start with looking at your schedule, setting aside time to reflect and pray, or time where you can serve other people, get out of yourself. But whatever it is, reflect on what it is. Uh, Christ, through Peter, calls us to the intentional cultivation of a holy life. Secondly, we are called to be aware of those who twist Scripture, to be watchful of those who twist Scripture. This is a theme that we've seen multiple times in Peter, Second uh, Peter specifically, and it's one that Peter reiterates here at the end. But in developing his argument here, he moves from verse 14 to 15 and refers to the Apostle Paul, his colleague, uh, to support what he's saying. So he refers to Paul to support what he's saying. And notice the way that he refers to Paul. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. That's how you refer to an esteemed colleague in the ministry. It's not just Paul. This is the, the beloved brother Paul. 
Uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with the letter to the Galatians, Paul and Peter had a, a pretty feisty altercation about how they were supposed to live out the gospel. Uh, it seems they've reconciled, right? That's what brothers and sisters do. We occasionally have conflicts, we disagree, but we reconcile. And so Peter refers to Paul with this language of a beloved brother. Is that how you view fellow Christians? Do you, do you view them as esteemed workers for Christ, pillars in the house of the Lord, people that you value and cherish because of the contributions they make to the kingdom? So Peter views Paul. And we're told that he writes according to the wisdom given him. This is another way of attributing divine inspiration to Paul's writings. He doesn't write simply with the wisdom of men, but the very wisdom of God is to be found in the letters that he has penned. What he writes is what God says to us. And he exhibits that wisdom in all that he writes. Now, some of what Paul writes is difficult to understand. Now, those of you who have wrestled with Paul's letters might go, yeah, there's an element of truth there. A couple of things to notice here. Number one, he doesn't say everything in Paul's heart. Some of the things in Paul are difficult. So let's not overstate this. There are many things in Paul that are very accessible and straightforward. But some of the things are difficult. The difficulty doesn't arise from his obscurity as a writer. It may perhaps arise from the profound things that he has to say to us. He's talking to us about the revealed mystery of God in Christ. There might be depths and heights that require some thought, and so that can explain the difficulty. But another aspect to understanding what he means by difficulty is how he describes those who twist Paul's writings. He says that they are ignorant and unstable. The word translated ignorant means ignorant, but also uninstructed, untaught. Now, this is not a, an innocent ignorance. These are false teachers. We've seen that their ignorance is, there is a kind of willful ignorance resulting from a rebellion against God. But because they are unschooled in the central tenets of the Christian faith, because they don't have a good grasp of the basic teaching of Christianity, when they approach Paul's letters without that doctrinal framework, they distort them. So part of the reason they're difficult is because Paul's letters are tough to interpret when you don't understand the fundamental assumptions of the Christian faith. Things like the Trinity, the dual nature of Christ, divine human, justification by faith alone, not by our works, but through the work of Jesus, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. Penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus is our substitute and he bears the wrath of God in our place. Doctrines like this, foundational doctrines, help us to understand Scripture and they keep us from misinterpreting Scripture. So to read Scripture well, we need to read it within the framework of Christian doctrine. That keeps us from misinterpreting things. So on the one hand, we get our doctrine from Scripture, but then doctrine itself shapes our reading of Scripture, and this is good. Sometimes people have this idea that I'm just going to read the Bible, and uh, I'll understand what it says, and it'll be fine. And yeah, it's the Word of God, and as you read it and reread it, you'll understand what it says. But it's important to recognize that you don't read it from a place of doctrinal neutrality. It's important to have an understanding of basic Christian teaching and bring that to bear on your reading. It's one of the reasons they're twisting the scriptures. Note this carefully, verse 16. So they twist uh, to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So they twist Paul's letters as they do 
the other scriptures. Now, what's the implication for how Peter views Paul's letters? According to Peter, Paul's letters are on par with Old Testament scripture. Paul's letters are divinely inspired. What Paul says, God says, and they stand in terms of authority and inspiration on the same level as Old Testament scripture. Now, this is hugely significant because you may have heard this idea that, well, these books that we have in the New Testament didn't become recognized as scripture until centuries later, some sort of Christian council. But here we have Peter, who's a contemporary of Paul and an apostle of Jesus Christ, attributing to Paul's letters the same status and authority as the Old Testament, showing that the early church had no trouble recognizing that these documents from the apostles were divinely inspired. It's not that the church decided, oh, these are, we've decided four centuries into this thing that this is divinely inspired. No, no, no. We see from the very beginning that Peter recognizes the writings of Paul as scripture. It uh, provides a corrective in another way as well. Have you ever talked to someone where you try to explain to them what the Bible teaches about a particular topic and you appeal to Paul? You know, Paul says in Romans this, and they immediately object, no, no, no. What did Jesus say? Forget about Paul, what does Jesus say? And the implication is there's a tension between Jesus and Paul, and it's not legitimate to quote Paul to get the teaching of Scripture. Again, that's not Peter's view. Peter views Paul as divinely inspired to communicate to us the very word of God. What he says, God says, and there's no incompatibility or inconsistency between Jesus and Paul. It's a really significant statement. But precisely because there are these depths and heights in Paul, there's some difficult passages that you have people twisting them, distorting them to defend their own false ideas. That's why in verse 17, Peter says to the believers that he's writing to that they need to take care not to be carried away and lose their own stability, their own spiritual stability. It's one thing when you have a false teacher come to you and say, hey, I reject the Old Testament, it's authority. That's helpful. Right? Thank you for flying your flag, false teacher, and letting me know that you're a false teacher, uh, that you reject Scripture. It's, it makes it easier. Much harder is when someone comes to you with Scripture and a seeming zeal for Scripture and starts to twist it to support their erroneous ideas. You know, Satan can quote Scripture. He did to Jesus. False teachers can demonstrate an outward zeal for the Word of God, but they're actually misrepresenting it. If you don't know it well, you could be misled. One implication of this is that we should, when we're, someone's teaching us the Bible, we should look carefully at how they're using Scripture. Is what they're saying clearly grounded in Scripture? Or are they distorting it? Are they saying things that are not clearly grounded in the text? You should apply that measuring rod to my preaching, any preaching that happens at CBC, or any preaching that happens anywhere. Is the guy telling me what the text is saying, or is he going off on his own little rabbit trail, offering his opinion, but it's ultimately not the Word of God? Is there a careful handling of Scripture? And if it isn't grounded in Scripture, be wary. We live also um, in a time where there's an abundant of really good abundance of really good resources on the internet. High quality commentaries, uh, works of theology, all sorts of good resources on doctrine and scripture. Sorts of gr really great speakers and pastors. But there's also a wealth of nonsense and error. And so if you're going to draw on those resources that are made available to you on the internet, videos, books, whatever, 
You need to be discerning in what you read and listen to. You need to interrogate your sources. Who's speaking to me? Someone's teaching you the Bible or doctrine and shaping you at a very fundamental level. You need to ask, well, what sort of person is this? And one good question to ask is, do they have any standing in the church? Are they some kind of pastor connected to a local church? You can look at their doctrinal statement. Does it align with uh, our doctrinal statement? Is this person a teacher, recognized teacher in some church? Are they connected to a denomination that's known for its faithfulness or a seminary that's known for being faithful in what it teaches? What is this person standing in the church? Is this person recognized in the broader Christian community? And by broader Christian community, I mean the people who think like you. Right, the, the, the broader Christian community is really broad, and there's those who are brothers and sisters that perhaps differ with us on certain key issues. And so by broader Christian community, I mean especially those who are in the same stream of thought that you are in. Within that community, are these people viewed as essentially reliable guides to scripture and doctrine? And if so, have a bias towards them and not the random person with no connection to a church or institution who's just very good at you know, his technical knowledge of scripture and is offering his expertise without having been vetted in any meaningful sense by the broader church. Does this person have any kind of standing in the church? It's a good question to ask. Have a bias for those who are widely recognized among evangelicals as faithful. A, a John Piper, you know, a Sinclair Ferguson, a uh, R.C. Sproul. Did I mention MacArthur? MacArthur, right, would be one of those guys. doesn't mean you agree with everything, right? But these are guys that have been affirmed by the church as reliable, faithful, and they're safe. So just be wary about who you're listening to and how they're shaping your thinking. Final imperative, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice verse 17, be careful. Defense. Verse 18, okay, so be careful, but then you need to gain ground. And in what way do you need to gain ground? Well, you need to grow in your knowledge of Jesus. I think it was John Bunyan um, in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, who said that, uh, the, who describes the Christian as having armor only in the front, not in the back. And that means that he, he has to constantly advance if he's going to be safe. If he retreats, he's not safe. The only way to be safe in the Christian life is to constantly move forward and how should we move forward? Well, we talked about growing in Christ-likeness, but here we ought to grow in our knowledge of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowledge here includes, as I mentioned at the start of the letter, uh, facts about Jesus. Facts that are taught in Scripture about the person of, and work of Jesus Christ. I should note here that Peter both ends and begins his letter with this statement about growing in, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He mentions it in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. And then again, right at the very end. So he brackets it, underscoring the importance of this concept, growing the knowledge of Jesus. And uh, knowing him is more than knowing facts about him, but not less. We need to grow in our understanding of what Scripture teaches about the person and work of Jesus. We need to go deeper. When you love something, it makes you a student, doesn't it? Love makes a scholar out of all of us. Like consider the person who's a coffee enthusiast, a coffee connoisseur. Uh, they can tell you where coffee beans are grown all over the world, the differences between the different regions, the different flavors that you get. They can tell you all sorts of, about the different harvesting techniques that are used, the way the beans are roasted, 
They can taste flavors that the rest of us can't and smell things that the, you know, blueberry that we can't for just a cup of coffee. What are you, what are you saying? Uh, when you are passionate about something, you pursue a detailed and specific knowledge of that thing. Isn't that right? That's true in any sphere of life. When, when you're delighted by something, you want to know with exactitude all that you can about this thing. And it's no different when it comes to Jesus Christ. Those who love the Savior want to know in great detail what he's like, what he's done. And it brings us joy in knowing him, knowing the, even the facts about him. Jonathan, you can go back to some of the old authors, like Jonathan Edwards, 18th century American theologian, uh, John Owen, English Puritan. And when they write about Christ, there, there's a sense of awe. There's a sense of the beauty of our Lord. And it well captures what I'm getting at. So Edwards, for example, in one of his sermons writes, by the way, this is 18th century England, just English, so heads up. Uh, he writes, there is an admirable union of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. The lion and the lamb, though very different creatures, yet each have their particular excellence. The lion excels in strength, and in the majesty of his appearance and voice, the lamb excels in meekness and patience. But we see that in Christ, these diverse excellencies wonderfully meet in him. It's just this careful meditation on the character of our Savior. He's a lion and he, he's a lamb. And what does that mean? And the sense of awe at who Christ is. Can you in any way identify with that? But is there a sense of the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ? Not just what he's done for us, but his character. So knowing Jesus means knowing about him, but it also involves a personal relationship. That's fundamental to Christianity. To be a Christian is to have a living relationship with the risen Lord. Uh, the, the, to be a Christian is to walk with Christ. There's a back and forth of communion and fellowship with him. We pour out our hearts to him in prayer. We seek his guidance. We hear his voice speaking to us through Holy Scripture. Out of love for him, we seek to obey him, and we walk in fellowship with the Savior. Absolutely basic to the Christian life. Are you seeking, not simply to be more obedient, not simply to pray and read the Bible more, are you seeking Christ in a deeper fellowship with him? You know, it's possible to be really enthusiastic about theology, really enthusiastic about Scripture, and not also really enthusiastic about Jesus? If you're somebody who likes to study, likes to think, likes to read, would the people around you say, of you, well, that person really knows their theology, that person really knows their Scripture, or would they say, that person really loves Jesus? Would your kids, your wife, your friends, other people at CBC, would they say, when, when, they make me want to be more like Jesus when I talk to them. Whatever else is true of them, they have a childlike awe at who he is. And I want to see what they see. That matters far more than, than whatever reputation we might have for being learned in the scriptures. Do you love Jesus Christ? Is that what people will say about you? Whatever else they will say, this person, this man, this woman loved the Savior. That should be our heart's ambition. And one indication that we are, in fact, growing in our relationship with Jesus 
is that it is our ambition to see him glorified in our lives. Final sentence here in the letter. Doxology. To him, that is to Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Significantly, most cases, this final expression of worship is directed to God the Father. Intriguingly, in 2 Peter, it's directed to the Son. Just one more indication that the Son of God is himself divine, himself God. This last verse, or last part of the verse, should be the heartbeat of our lives. To him be the glory now and forever. The thing that should drive us in everything, in our speaking, in acting, in our goals, is to bring glory and honor to the King. In every thought, in every word, in every deed, we should aspire to communicate to Jesus, this much, this much is what you mean to me, Lord. When we patiently endure adversity and are content because we know Jesus, we are, we are saying back to him, Lord, this is how much you mean to me. When we patiently endure suffering without grumbling and complaining because we have him, we're communicating to him, Lord, this much is what you mean to me, and we glorify him. And we should aspire to glorify him and exalt him in the eyes of other people. It's interesting, if you read the, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, he tells us that he not only seeks to preach the gospel, to tell people about Jesus so people would be converted, he preaches so that as more and more people come into the church, there is more and more praise for King Jesus. And he is receiving the honor and adoration that he deserves as the Son of God. His ambition is nothing less than to see the whole world filled with those who praise and adore Jesus Christ. As John Piper once put it, mission exists because worship doesn't. What drives us in sharing Jesus with others is not just their salvation, as important as that is, but also the glory of Jesus. We want our king to receive the praise and honor that is his due, and that drives us to speak. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to give some money to help the poor in Judea. And why does he do that? Why does he arrange this collection? So that as needs are met in Judea, Jesus will get more and more praise and honor. Do you, is, do you understand that motivation? Is that, does that drive you to some extent? I think that this is a motivation for obedience that's frequently overlooked. We should obey because it's right. We should obey certainly because it pleases Jesus. But we should obey and seek to live a fruitful and faithful life because it exalts the name of Jesus. We want to have our marriages flourish. And uh, a good reason for wanting your marriage to flourish and, and go well is for the sake of domestic happiness. There's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. But there's also something higher. The quality of your marriage matters because according to Ephesians 5, the quality of your marriage can reveal or not the glory of Jesus, the greatness of the gospel. And so you should work on your marriage, yes, for the sake of your own happiness, but also because your marriage is communicating something about Jesus and you want his name to be exalted, so you want that and therefore work at your marriage. Similarly, when you aren't walking in submission to Christ, consider what your behavior is saying about Jesus to others. Yes, obviously sin will affect your relationship with him, but consider what you are communicating about Jesus to others through your disobedience. Take, for instance, undiluted, uncontrolled fear and anxiety. Let's say that you are living with this uncontrolled panic and fear. 
Well, at one level, you should repent because it's, that's an expression of unbelief. Jesus is your king. He's going to take care of you, and you need to believe that, right? But then also consider what you're saying through your anxiety to the people around you. Jesus is either not strong enough to help you or good enough to help you. You are diminishing Christ in the eyes of others through your sinful response to adversity. Like your aim should be, I, I don't want to respond with fear because I want the people around me to see how great Christ is. And I'm going to be calm in the midst of the storm because he's my rock, he's my king, and I want his name to be exalted. We need to learn to think more in these terms. It's not just about us and having life go well for us. It's about how can I speak and act? What goals can I aim at such that the name of Jesus Christ would be more and more exalted? Our lives at every point should reflect Psalm 145 verses 1 through 3. This is what our lives should be singing all the time. I will extol you, my God and King. Bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Great is Christ and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. May that be the, may that be the heartbeat of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that as Peter has instructed us, we ask that you would help us to grow in increasing conformity to your holy character. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us to be fueled by a holy reverence for you that expresses itself in a, in a desire to lift you up in everything that we say and do. Lord, you are worthy of all praise and adoration. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would bring this to pass. Amen.